Bet365 sponsors our podcast and features over 300,000 sporting events on their betting app. It's got everything you'll ever need to bet on sport. It's the League Cup final this weekend as Manchester City take on Aston Villa at Wembley. Will City win the trophy for the third year in a row or can Grealish inspire Villa to a famous upset? With Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, numbers of goals and more to build your own personalised bet. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. Hello, welcome to the Ornstein and Chapman podcast on The Athletic, bringing you exclusive and original stories and interviews, offering agenda-setting insight from inside the game from David and writers from across The Athletic. Coming up today, we'll look at... I'm laughing already. We'll look at the handling of VAR by those in charge and the media. David, uh-huh. I know, David will reveal another uh, Borussia Dortmund player targeted by England and we'll bring you details of Andre Gomez's incredible return to fitness at Everton. And, of course, by listening to us, you can get a 40% discount on subscription by going to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. I was thinking when this running order was put together, David, you know, in, the, in the last couple of weeks, uh, Danny Ings has joined us, Chris Hewitt has joined us, Gordon Taylor has joined us. Unbelievably in-depth podcast last week on Manchester City. Really interesting, fascinating <laughs> subjects. And today starts with VAR. And I just want to sort of hit my head on the table. You really. know when your optimistic starts to the, start to the year, like hits a plateau yes that's today but it's going to be good and we've got potentially another big one bonus podcast coming up later in the week so all will be revealed okay but we'll try and do VAR a bit differently because in your column on The Athletic this week you have spoken about the inner workings of the statements that came out from PGMOL after the decision at Stamford Bridge on La Celso and no red card yeah well First thing is we're not here to take sides in the slightest, however we may sort of personally feel about it, just to lay out the situation that occurred. Um, That live situation is something that the Premier League hadn't experienced before. And so you get yourself into a no-win situation. You either clarify um, the position, which which they did twice, um, or you don't do it at all. The first piece of guidance that came out was an explanation of what David Coote had ruled, why he had not given a red card. He was the VAR official. He was the VAR official. That came from people uh, in a room adjoined to the VAR room, including Mike Riley's number two on Saturday. Um, and they have a live feed of David Coote and can hear the exact reasoning for his decision and they can relay that immediately live to the host broadcaster, which for this match was BT Sport, and then disseminate it to various other media outlets for an explanation. David Coote can't hear anything back. He is sealed off from the outside world so he can focus on the match. His view was that it was not a red card. We're all human. That was a a subjective decision. Um, And given that Michael Oliver had not given a red card there and then, and that had been backed up by David Coote, David Coote decided there was no need to send him, in his opinion, to the monitor. And it would be improbable of Michael Oliver to say, are you sure about that? 
because they both made the same decision live in a pressurised environment and a, a fast-flowing situation. Although um, Michael Oliver's, as I understand it, was that he hadn't seen enough of it to know that it was a red card. Yes, but the guidance from the Premier League was that he did see some of the incident and didn't feel mm. it was a red card. So there wasn't a major reason there and then to say, um, go and look at the screen from either man. Though that was deemed a mistake by those watching um, in the outside world, all of us pretty much, um, but also Mike Riley, who was not at Stockley Park, the VAR hub, and he got straight in contact with his number two, who, as I said, was in that room adjoined to the VAR hub, um, and others such as Dermot Gallagher, who was in on site at Stockley Park in a different room called the Match Centre with various other senior PGMO officials. And they all very quickly decided it should have been a red card and they relayed this information to the host broadcaster and the wider media. David Coote knew nothing about this because he sealed off, as we said, uh, until he finishes the match, he leaves the VAR hub, uh, he goes in for his post-match debrief, which is routine, and he is asked to explain his decisions, they review the match, they look at key incidents, that's all standard procedure. I'm told that once watching that incident back yet again, he then accepted that it should have been a red card. Uh, I don't think he issued a po an apology, and he will not face any subsequent action, which I know has annoyed a lot of people. Uh, he then went on also to uh, VAR, the late match between Leicester and Manchester City, which that last bit is astonishing in itself, really. I mean, that is standard practice, as I understand it, this season, that whoever VARs 12.30, also VARs 5.30. But to have been involved in such a high-profile incident that your superiors then decide you have got wrong puts added pressure on you ahead of the 5.30. You would, you, it's an only human reaction to feel under a little bit of pressure if your bosses have decided that you have done wrong in the first game when you go into the second game. I would assume so. And since coming out of that sealed room, he would have known about the media uh, furore that had developed. He would have known about the decision that had been changed. But referees are trained to grow a thick skin. Um, the PGMOL employs two psychologists to work with referees pre and mid-season. And they're prepared we're told, uh, for situations like this. And therefore, he was said to be uh, feeling no ill effects of that incident and fine to go on to the next game in the evening. That, as you say, is a standard procedure. It's happened all season. There is a manpower issue in terms of getting uh, enough qualified officials to take on that VAR role for multiple matches. And it will continue. There are no plans to change that as we speak. So, we may think it's ludicrous. Many people I've spoken to within the game over the last um, 24 hours or so think it's crazy because referees are expected to show the same level of mental concentration, whether they are on field or VAR. Admittedly, the VAR isn't running around the pitch for 90 plus minutes, but I think in an ideal world there would be a change, but it doesn't seem like one's going to be coming. But we have also seen... And I'm not suggesting that this should this should happen because it annoys teams lower down the football pyramid. We have seen referees make mistakes in games and then they get demoted for a week to go and do a game in the Championship or in League One. And part of that, they may argue, PGML, is that it's not a demotion, it's just to try and lessen the spotlight on them just for a week to try and take the pressure off. So you could argue that you could do something similar here. 
just to take the pressure off. Personally, I think that would be highly sensible. Not as a pun, not yeah. as a punishment. No, not no. as a punishment. Just, just to ease the um, ease the sort of focus on this situation and on on David Coop personally. You, we're human. We don't. We make errors. We don't um, deserve necessarily this sort of scrutiny um, as individuals. So he'll not face any action. And furthermore, Giovanni Lacelso will not face a retrospective red card. The incident was deemed to have been seen live by the officials, and therefore under the rules you cannot go back um, and Giovanni Lacelso has escaped on this occasion which is pretty significant because Spurs have some very important matches coming up their squad is stretched he has been one of their most impressive performers of late and in this race for the top four a key player like that could have a bearing on proceedings. Let's bring Jack Pitbrook our senior writer at The Athletic who covers Spurs in England and also host of our View from the Lane podcast into the discussion. Uh, is the feeling at Spurs, Jack, that they may have got away with one here? Yeah, so Lacelso's has obviously been... He's been Tottenham's best player under Mourinho, so much so I th- we were talking on our own podcast about uh, earlier this morning. I think he might actually have been Tottenham's player of the season so far. Like, everything's gone through him in the last few weeks. And if they'd lost him for another three games, which I think would also include the FA Cup fifth round against Norwich City they'd be in a really bad position so obviously Spurs you know Spurs are very fortunate that they do have their best player available now for the next three games um just on VAR just not from a Spurs perspective but just from a media perspective do you think we in the media don't necessarily help the process and by that I mean as soon as something like what happened on Saturday takes place The PGMOL will get bombarded. Obviously, David has said the host, broadcaster, BT or Sky, get the feed direct. But Five Live, Talk Sport, Match of the Day, uh, the press as well, can all all get in touch with the contacts at PGMOL and immediately demand a reason why the VAR decision was given in whatever way it was, you know, not just not just on Saturday's incident. And therefore, our demand for a quick response so that we can broadcast it or tweet it, I think at times this season has led to some quite odd reasons being given to justify a VAR decision. Yeah, I completely agree. I don't actually see what benefit is served from the PGA MOL issuing that statement. I mean, we've spent so much time worrying about whether the VAR would undermine the authority of the on-field referee. And now we've got this situation where the PGMOL are undermining the authority of the VAR. But I think I think it really it really spe- it, what it really shows up is a, the kind of fundamental issue with VAR, which is that we were sold it as if it were possible to reach some kind of objective perfection when it comes to referees decisions and of course the reality is we can't because so many decisions made on a football field are subjective and the fact that the VAR process has managed to reach obviously the wrong decision and PGMOL have come have had to come out and say that just underlines the absurdity of the whole process like there is no such thing as perfection in football decisions and we shouldn't we shouldn't change the game in order to try and get there. No, and and actually, when other sports are held up as examples of technology working, whether it be cricket or rugby league or rugby union or NFL, the people who hold up those examples still have to realise that sometimes decisions are still got wrong by the big screen officials in those sports as well. Because still in the main, a lot of the decisions are subjective and down to one person's view and and therefore those other sports are not perfect by any means completely yeah and i actually think cricket is easier to do in this way than football because most of the cricket decisions are line calls Mm -hmm. and so they are you know 
it's either on one side of the line or it's not. Whereas, obviously, football is harder to referee. And this idea that we've, you know, people think that VAR's a robot. It's not. It's just a man in a box watching a screen. Like, there's no, you, you can't expect this process to give us perfection. And that's why I think the process isn't worth the cost. Just one more on this, just um, with the offside, because you've recently written about Arsene Wenger's rule change proposal, which is? Yeah, so Arsene Wenger suggested a change to the offside rule, which would mean that instead of the furthest forward legally usable body part of the attacking player being what is relevant in offside call, it would be the furthest back part. So it would effectively be the introduction of daylight with the benefit going to the attacker. So, for example, if an attacker was running forward level with a defender, the key point would not be like the attacker's armpit or knee closest to the goal. It would be effectively his back heel, as in the part of him that was furthest away from the goal. So it would be a massive, it would be a a radical overhaul of offside. Uh, I think it would make, I think it would be more exciting in the sense that there would be Initially, I think there'd be fewer offsides and there would be more goals. But I also think it would be practically very difficult because you would be asking us. I mean, obviously, the rule would have to apply to all levels of the game. And you'd be asking assistant referees, you know, in grassroots and non-league and lower league who don't have access to VAR to suddenly stop doing what they've done their whole career, which is to look at eye level and at, you know, the, the kind of upper body and the head of the attacking player and look down at their feet instead. And that would be very, very difficult, not least because... You know, in the in in a busy penalty area with everyone charging around, it's probably quite difficult to ascertain which heels belong to which bodies. <laughs> that is a ve- that is a very good point on the lower leagues that I hadn't actually considered. It will be absolute carnage. Jack, just back to the wider point. How do you think we get around this problem of having a vastly more experienced referee on the pitch, Michael Oliver, for example, than the official who is performing the VAR duties, such as David Coote? Is it that we need to start looking at the monitor more, which was an instruction of the PGMO to David Coote in his post-match briefing that you should have suggested at the very least that Michael Oliver reviews the screen? Or is there a different solution? Yeah, I think the screen should be used more. I mean, I, I think that that would help to... It would help to kind of reinforce the authority of the on-pitch official, which I know is, is a big concern of some people when it comes to VAR. Like, I mean, for, for me personally, my first experience of VAR was the 2018 World Cup, when it was routine for referees to stop the game, run over, look at the screen, run back onto the pitch, and then make his decision. And to me, that seems a better system than this system, where you sometimes get referees being overruled, whether incorrectly or correctly, and the referee is basically as much of a spectator as anyone else. So, yeah, I totally agree that the off, the pitch side monitors should be used more. I had one suggestion uh, put to me from a couple of people in football that um, Greg Clark, the FA chairman, has come under, not pressure, but it's been made clear to him in UEFA and FIFA circles that England is very much out of line in its use of the pitch side monitors so far uh, and it should make greater use of them. And I think since that occurred there have been a couple of instances we saw in the FA Cup in the and, cup. Uh, and we saw an incident in the Premier League and as it was told to me um, David Coote was informed in his post-match briefing that you should have at the very least told Michael Oliver to go over and use the screen I wonder now if we are going to start seeing it more 
Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it, the difference between UEFA and the Premier League on this issue of, of VAR. I know that the UEFA stance, for example, on offside is that they they don't want the same level of kind of microscopic re-examination of potential offsides that is now unfortunately routine in the Premier League. Uh, so much so that I heard, and I put this in my in, a, in the story I did an offside this week, I heard recently that in there is a, there is a view in UEFA headquarters that Jesse Lingard's uh, winning goal in the UEFA Nations League semi-final against Holland, which of course was disallowed for offside mm. at the very end of that game. So that was the kind of typically the kind of typical goal that is now often disallowed in the Premier League, where it looks level and is effectively level, but was given as offside. Now, I'm told there is now a view inside UEFA that they regret that that was given offside and they don't believe that that is appropriate use of VAR, whereas it's the kind of thing that's given, that's now disallowed all the time in the Premier League. So there is a difference there. And that what I think this shows us is that the, the current situation in the Premier League, it doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to use this as much as we do. We don't have to use it in the same way as we currently do. There is certainly scope for re-examination and change. Uh, just a quick one, uh, because we're going to look at England, but just with your, your Spurs hat on from, from covering Spurs and also from the View from the Lane podcast. Um, are, and it's a bit of a generalisation, I suppose, but are Spurs fans in the main happy with... Jose Mourinho's rather negative outlook on life at the moment and wishing it was July the 1st? I think there's a, a broad range of views amongst Spurs fans on this particular topic. I know that I know there is a lot of sympathy for the difficult hand that he's been given. You know, he took over the team in mid-season when they were completely on the floor confidence-wise. It's very, very hard having no Kane and no Son, just old Ericsson as well, of course. And so the, the squad at the moment is not in a good place. However, I, I certainly detect there is a little bit of frustration just with the kind of defeatism yes. of Mourinho when he says, you know, you know it's, it's as if their situation is that there would be no other option but to go to go to Stamford Bridge, play five four one, defend effectively in their own half for most of the game, and try and, and try and take their chances on the break. I think that I, I know it's hard, and I know that this you know Mourinho is not playing with all his cards at the moment, but you. Sometimes I think he's kind of t- he's 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 talking Spurs into a worse situation than they're, than they are actually in. He does still have some very good players to call on. Jack, do you think there's any tension building between Mourinho and Daniel Levy? Mourinho so far seems to be sort of behaving himself in the media and press conferences towards the club, but it feels like there are some small issues sort of developing. Are you feeling any tensions or is is that very, very premature? Personally, I haven't heard anything to indicate that. But Daniel Levy must have known that politics and expectation management and political selections and all of this Mourinho stuff, like this, this is just part of the package. This is what happens when you appoint Mourinho. And I also know that I've heard recently that people, you know, for example, people, some people at Manchester United were surprised when Mourinho went to Tottenham because they know how needy he is in terms of in terms of players. And Tottenham cannot have Tottenham can't have gone into this with their eyes closed. They must have known this is what you get when you appoint Mourinho. And obviously, with Pochettino, he was there for so long, and eventually the kind of moaning in public, I think, slightly un- undermined his relationship with the club. And I wonder whether at what point Jose will, will reach that as well with Daniel. Now, Stitch Fix is an online personal styling service that takes the work out of dressing well. Uh, it's a fun <laughs> and light touch. Well, your style's improved since you've used it. Anyhow, I'm get... wearing a tracksuit. Uh, well, you look well. Th- thanks very much. Actually, this is this is a uh, this, beautiful this little uh, sort of I don't know what do you call it. 
Um, Great. Kaftan jumper, zip up. Kaftan jumper. Enough. Right. This is meant to. This is meant to highlight their their good state. It's not a kaftan, is it? That's trendy these days. It's a. Um. It's like a great sort of uh, cardigan kind of thing, isn't it? But it's not a cardigan. It's sad. beautiful. This is why I need them because they. <laughs> they. I. I have no idea about fashion, and they send me send me the stuff. So anyhow, We're two of a kind. So you go to stitchfix.co.uk/athletic. You fill in a style quiz. You tell Stitchfix about your personal style, and aesthetic, budget, size, and shape, fit challenges. Clothing needs and wants. I didn't click kaftan and this arrived. Um, uh, what they do, though, they send five different outfits to you or five different items of clothing. You pick the ones you want and you send the ones back that you don't want. I actually kept all five of mine because they all all worked for me. Well, you must have had an empty wardrobe. No, no, I have lots of things in there, but they actually nailed it when when I obviously filled everything incorrectly and they sent me the right stuff. Um, So all you've got to do uh, is to get started with Stitch Fix, you go to stitchfix.co.uk slash athletic right now, do the style quiz, then you will receive your box of clothes, you'll get a stylist note, uh, you keep the ones that you like, you send the ones that that you don't like back, and hopefully... You look as stylish as me in this, in so this great cardigan. So, stitchfix.co.uk slash athletic. Uh, let's move on to England then, because, David, you've written about uh, England watching Dortmund's Gio Reyna as part of a uh, sophisticated talent system at St George's Park. I'm saying it with a slight smile on my face because it amused me when reading it that in this modern world they're not called scouts anymore, the people who identify these, these players. They what? are... Talent reporters. Right, talent reporters. Uh, Almost like they're sort of slipping into the world of journalism here. So they have a massive analytics cave, do they, where they scout people across the world? Well, I think Dan Ashworth, when he was technical director, put in place um, this system to kind of cast the net as wide as possible to um, try and find players that qualify to play for England or could be eligible um, depending on criteria like their ability to get a passport, whether they've got a passport, who they've played for at youth level, etc. And that's totally understandable given the um, restricted pool of of talent that's available in this country and a a small number of players abroad. Um, That's developed in in recent years and since Dan Ashworth's left they're trying to make it really world class now. It's mainly... um, operated out of St George's Park by a team called the Player Insights team and there are a number of uh, people office based something like 12 video analysts and people working on talent ID from um, a sort of technological and analytical point of view Uh, and then there are a vast number of people on the ground uh, traditional scouting you could say um, and they're supplemented by um, coaches who as part of their responsibility as national team coaches at the various age groups um, go out and do scouting as well. I don't think the FA are looking for sort of fake English men and women. They're looking for genuine qualifiers. So they want these players to want to join them. They want to look at them really, really thoroughly. Uh, And as they progress through the system, they're funneled and Gio Reyna uh, is part of a priority list now that includes around 25 players and they are being analysed in a more concerted way. They're being watched more regularly. He has been scouted live in person now around 15 times and by video uh, roughly 30 times. 
England haven't made a move for him yet, so they're just assessing him at the moment because once you make a move, things get very serious. You need to make sure he ticks all the qualification uh, criteria. You need to make your application to FIFA, uh, which takes a pretty long time as they do some really thorough research themselves to make sure that player qualifies. Then you need to make sure that he definitely wants to join you, which they don't do at the beginning because that can come out in the media. It can make agents and players play countries off against each other other um and also Gio Reyna you know he's come through the US system so far he's played at youth level for uh, the United States but he, he was, was he was born in Durham that's was, what, that's why this is an ethical uh, yeah. approach if they go as far yeah, as definitely. an approach because he was born there when his dad Claudio was playing for Sunderland yeah that's right and then they moved to Manchester City when Claudio moved there and so I think he was in England for about five years um uh, and then the family moved to the United States and he came through the New York City FC Academy. Uh, it's said that Gio Reyna has or had a Mancunian accent, which you'll be pleased to know. And so there is the possibility there. He would also potentially qualify to play for Portugal and Argentina as well. He's got no senior caps for the USA and he hasn't yet publicly declared what he wants to do. He is bursting onto the scene in quite spectacular fashion at Borussia Dortmund. He's only 17 years old, but he's also already made his Champions League debut, scored a goal in the German Cup and is turning heads. Okay, let's uh, get some more on Gio Reyna, or if we're going to do it with a Mancunian accent, Gio Reyna. Uh, here is the Athletics German writer, Rafa Honigstein. Well, I'm certainly not surprised that the FA, as well as other FAs, are looking at uh, Gio Reyna. He's been quite wonderful since coming through into the first team in 2020 for Dortmund. They've had high hopes for him over the last few months, but I think weren't quite sure how far he was in his development. Uh, Lucien Favre certainly thinks he is ready. He's been increasingly playing him, and whenever he has come on, he's done really special things. He's got a wonder goal in the league. He did really well against PSG. And uh, you know, for a 17-year-old, his, his progress has been absolutely rapid. So again, um, if the FA weren't looking at him, thinking there was an outside chance of getting him, I think that'd be negligent. So I can only condone what they're doing and I hope that um, you will make the right decision. That was Rafa Honestein on Gio Reyna. Uh, Jack Pitbrook with us as well, who is covers England for The Athletic. As far as Gareth Southgate is concerned in, in all of this, does he have a... I know they have a technical director at the FA, but does Southgate have a director of football role when it comes to talent ID or is he is it all about the senior side for him? All the age group managers, I think, meet up often to decide which players will move between will move between the different age groups. I mean, it's very you know we talk a lot about England DNA. It's kind of overused phrase, but what what is practically meant by that is is a shared way of playing which allows players to transition easily from one team to another, and that means that Southgate takes a very keen eye on who is performing well all the way down to under 17s level so that everybody can be on the same page when it comes to the progression of players through the system. And that is why sometimes players who haven't gone through under-19s, under-20s, under-21s maybe find it harder to break into the actual senior side setup because Gareth Southgate and the rest of the coaches like the progression through those, through those age group sides to the senior sides. Completely, yeah. I mean, look at. I mean, a good example would be say Nathaniel Chalaber, 
who mm. you know is a fantastically talented player and has done really well at Watford, except for that horrible spell out with a knee injury. But Southgate always always likes to have him in the squad when he's fit and available to play. And I think in part that's because of the, of the trust that Southgate has that Chalaba understands the England way of playing, because of course Chalaba was a big star uh, with the youth teams all the way up to 21s um, playing for Southgate's 21 side. On the other hand, you've got, uh, so let's say, Jack Grealish, who was obviously in the Republic of Ireland setup at age group level and pl- played a handful of games for England 21s, but wasn't like wasn't a regular for England youth group youth youth teams, and he hasn't really been able to make that step to an England senior squad yet. Although perhaps that will change next week. So clearly, I mean, I'm not saying there's a bias, but there is uh, a, there is like an, an understanding that players who have been part of the England set up over the years they get a little bit maybe a little bit more trust or that they seem to fit in better with what Southgate wants to do with the senior side you covered Dortmund PSG for the Athletic last week which must have been a really tough gig uh, did you see enough of Reina in that game to to make a decision on him well no I wouldn't no. make a decision on him but the one thing he did do is he he made the assist mm. for Haaland's spectacular second goal where and the amazing thing about that looking back is that it, it doesn't it didn't look at the time as if a goal was about to happen and even when you watch the clips back it, you don't feel as if as if Dortmund are about to score but Reina went on a nice little run down the middle uh, he's got you can tell he's got fantastic balance the way he turns and dribbles with the ball and it's always close to him his feet and then he laid it off to Haaland who took one touch and then banged it in the far top corner from 20 yards. But he, he certainly looked, yeah, he looked natural and comfortable without being spectacular. Paris Saint-Germain were awful in that game, weren't they? And actually, it came off the back of a four-all draw against Amia. And also, the other night, they just about held on to beat Bordeaux 4-3 and Neymar was sent off. They're in a very odd run of form at Paris Saint-Germain. Yeah, it's, I mean, PSG in the Champions League, is, it's like Manchester City in the Champions League, but more so in the sense that the only thing that matters to them is winning it. But that means they have so much pressure on their Champions League games that they or something always just seems to go wrong. It's interesting you mentioned Manchester City in the Champions League. There's a really good article on The Athletic at the moment. It's a joint effort from Sam Lee and Rafa Honigstein on Pep Guardiola's relationship with the Champions League and whether there is a, a Champions League curse around Guardiola. But we can hear from Rafa once again on what went wrong for Guardiola in the Champions League whilst he was manager of Bayern. Well, the great irony of the Pepias at Bayern is that he was hired in December 2012 with a view of winning the Champions League for Bayern. What neither Bayern nor him knew was that by the time he arrived six months later, they had actually won the Champions League under Jupinkas, which made it slightly more difficult for him because he then had to repeat something. And we have seen from teams when they achieve a big target, a big ambition that had been eluding them in recent years, then sometimes maybe a little bit of the focus, maybe a little bit of the sharpness of the hunger is missing. That wasn't so much the case at Bayern. He did his best, I think, to get this team to a new level of, of excellence in the way that they played. His demanding ways made sure that they were always very, very sharp. What they did suffer from was almost too much dominance because they won the league so early that by the time the big Champions League teams, the big Champions League ties came around, there was sometimes a sense that they weren't quite at the best in the, in, in the rhythm. They got knocked out three times in the semi-final by, by Spanish sides, which is a pattern that perhaps suggested some kind of bigger systemic problem. The bottom line is that I think nobody in Munich sees Guardiola as having failed his task. Yes, he didn't win the Champions League, but he did enough 
in terms of lifting Bayern to new levels of, of football. Also in the Champions League with some of the games were just completely on a different planet. His reign is still seen as a, as a resounding success and they wanted to renew him. I think they would still take him back in a heartbeat even though uh, he was very demanding and made it difficult for, for some players and some officials to live with him. Uh, half of the time but the underlying brilliance of his work I think is still being appreciated uh, his failure in inverted commas to win the Champions League notwithstanding it is a fascinating piece uh, to read mainly because of all the people who have worked with Pep and their experiences working with him whether it be as an assistant to him whether it be playing under him Thomas Muller is in there um, he's, he, he's quoted as saying in knockout games Guardiola pays a lot of attention to the opponents and their strengths we will play with that risk because that's who we are sometimes though it's not 100% clear what we're doing and whilst Muller may be a slightly dissenting voice in all of this David there's lots of other stuff in there which basically is the Champions League is a bloody hard competition to win because it is a cup competition in the end and you've got the best teams in Europe going for it. So you need a slice of luck. For, for all there might be questions of the management, it is in essence, it's not a league, it's a cup competition. Yeah, and the randomness of that has meant that so many clubs over the years who we feel should have gone on to win or challenge uh, in the latter stages of the Champions League have not done so. And many, uh, like Porto, spring to mind, who, uh, who shouldn't really have done. I know some players at Manchester City uh, or of some players at Manchester City who are absolutely hell-bent on winning this trophy. It'd be ironic if they did it this year, uh, given what could come with the potential ban. Um, and even more interesting, if that ban stands and they haven't won the competition, the likes of Kevin De Bruyne, who are getting towards the latter stages of their career now. But but it's understandable and, and um, that... Uh, the greatest managers obsess over it if it is seen as the greatest trophy, but that doesn't that still doesn't take into account the luck. I mean, Jordi Cruyff is in the article talking about his father and his father's relationship and how he would tinker because he became obsessed with it. Uh, Charlie Eccleshire, uh, Jack, has written about Jose Mourinho's recent struggles with the Champions League, having built his reputation in the competition. These greatest managers are obsessed with something when you, when you can't control all of it. Yeah, that, I think that's been the story, especially of Guardiola in the last 10 years, because with Mourinho, I don't... Th- Certainly not since the inter-team of 2010. I don't think Mourinho's managed a team which could claim to be the best in Europe. But I think both Pep's Bayern and Pep City could claim to be the best team in the world. And yet, in in both cases, they've found increasingly unlikely ways of getting themselves knocked out in the latter stages of the competition. It's, funny, it's a really interesting to- dilemma because if you took the kind of... Uh, you could call it pro-pet position you could look at so many little details which happen to go against Guardiola in this competition so there were refereeing decision against Liverpool in 2018 there was of course the Sergio Aguero missed penalty against Tottenham and then the um, Fernando Llorente hip goal and the Raheem Sterling VAR disallow Mm. goal uh, in 2019 if you go back to Bayern like as Rafi said there was they were fantastic against Atletico Muller missed a penalty in 2016 in 2015 against Barca they were completely in the game until Messi just took it away from them at the end of the first leg so this there are so many little 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 details which have gone against Guardiola but then when this happens every single year you wonder well is it because like what's the connecting thing here and of course it's the Pep's the manager so I wonder if there's something like structural to the way that Pep 
manages, which is that he's so it's so much about plan A and imposing yourself on the on the opposition and dominating that when when some little detail goes wrong, it's as if the players kind of don't know how to react, like they don't know how to manage the game in these kind of difficult circumstances. But, but then all of those examples that you've just given. I don't, without sounding like a broken record, all come down to a little bit of luck. Lorente's hip, Sterling VAR, Aguero's missed penalty, Thomas Muller's missed penalty. Completely, yeah. yeah. And City, like as, as Rafi said, like Bayern were incredible in those games against Atletico in 2016. Frankly, City were brilliant for most, but not all, of the Tottenham second leg last year. But they just like they got it badly wrong at the start and the start and end of the game. So, but I think with Guardiola, it's he's so much about like. He's so much about dominance that in these kind of tight, even games, these which are decided by one detail here or there, those are the ones that seem to kind of routinely break against him. Good to have you on, Jack. Thank you. See you soon. Jack Pitbrook, who is the Athletics uh, Tottenham and England writer. Do you like beer? Do you like free? Well, how about, and you may have guessed this, free beer. As a valued listener, we'd like to bestow upon you just that. Thanks to our good pals at beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com slash footy and cover just the postage of £4.95. You've got to pay the postie. And as if that wasn't enough, as a listener of the Ornstein and Chapman podcast, you'll get two extra free beers. So that's basically 10 free beers. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They traverse the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest small batch breweries planet Earth has to offer. So no surprise then that they are the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 delivers a case with a different theme. Themes have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand and many more, but they haven't forgotten their roots. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are passionate about the UK craft beer scene. And the beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave any time. The power is in your hands. As well as the best, most interesting beer money can buy, your case will include the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment, which explains the theme and individual beers you'll receive. And a beery snack is thrown in, just to top it all off. If you don't like dark beers, choose the light plan. It's easy. All you've got to do, go to www.beer52.com footy to get your case free. And don't forget, right now, Ornstein and Chapman podcast listeners get two extra free beers. There's another really interesting story on The Athletic this week. It involves Andre Gomez and his remarkable recovery at Everton. So let's talk to The Athletic's Everton writer and host of the Glad Tidings podcast, Patrick Boyland, who joins us now. It is remarkable, this, Patrick, that he broke his leg in November and he is such a horrific injury as well, and he is back playing before the end of February. Yeah, absolutely, and I think it's this has been one of those stories that's kind of gone way beyond Everton Football Club and the, and the intricacies of what's going on at Goodison Park. It's almost something because of the extent of the injury and, and how graphic it was that, that's captured the imagination, for, for want of a better phrase, of the rest of the Premier League and Premier League supporters. So it was really nice at the Emirates. I was at the Emirates on Sunday. It was really nice to see Arsenal fans, for example, mm. when Andrew Gomez came onto the pitch in the 59th minute, applauding him and standing up and obviously got a fantastic reception from uh, the Everton away contingent at the Emirates too. So 
112 days it was between <laughs> when the injury was sustained and when he got back into uh, first team action with Everton. He also played in a behind closed doors game 105 days after his injury God. last weekend at Finch Farm. What, what I would say though is that it kind of maybe there's a sense that the injury, because of how graphic it was, because of the leg and the way it was jutting out at an angle when he, when he sustained it, was kind of hammed up by sections of the media. It might not have been quite as serious as we were initially led to believe. I mean, I remember the night it happened, seeing reports, kind of doom-laden reports of, of Gomez's career being in jeopardy, this being a, a season-ending injury. Maybe we won't see him again for a, a full 12 months. And anybody I spoke to, either at Everton or in the medical profession, quickly was at pains to point out that this is something that is eminently um, recoverable. It's, it's something that Everton can do, and um, if, if they work closely, if the, the science is right. Um, so by, by no means was it, was it a, maybe as serious as some were led to believe, but <laughs> by, by the same token, it, it, it is still a remarkable recovery, if that makes do, sense. Do, yes. we, do we know of anyone that's recovered from a fractured dislocation of the ankle quite as quickly? I don't, and actually when I, when I posted about the behind closed doors game, Ben Dinnery, the injury expert, um, who does some stuff with The Athletic actually, he replied to my tweet saying, he, on his site, he's not registered anybody as having come back from that kind of injury quicker. So it, it is, like, like I say, you've, you've got to get the balance right between reporting the injury correctly, but also just how well Andre and the, the team have done to get him to the point at which he's able to come back. So seamlessly, I might add, at the Emirates, I mean, he was, he was Everton's best player for my money for the 30 minutes he was on the pitch. I need Everton to treat my heel injury. <laughs> I, I, do, I do take the point of the medical profession in all of this, that oh, they have their expertise and they know these things, but they do have to excuse those of us who aren't medically trained, that if someone's leg is pointing in two different directions, that we are meant to think that that is quite a horrible, serious injury. Yeah, that's, that's completely yeah. fair enough. And I, I wasn't actually covering the game for, for The Athletic. My, my fellow Everton correspondent, Greg O'Keefe, was doing it. So I was, I was sat in the Gladys Street, um, kind of parallel with where the action was happening. And my first indication that this was serious was Serge Aurier's reaction. Yeah. He turned, turned to the Gladys Street. There was a look of horror in his eyes. And very, very quickly, people around Andre Gomez, close to the sidelines, were beckoning medical team over now I mean I've, I've written a piece on it on the athletic site on, on Monday morning and we do have to highlight the fantastic work that was done by club doctor John Hollingsworth who, who actually reset the the leg on the pitch and in layman's terms that means he put the bones back into place on the pitch and that we are told has had uh, a substantial impact on the on the time frame and allowed Gomez to come back quicker probably a month quicker than than people inside the club were expecting. And, and, and that, from the physical point of view, um, deserves a huge amount of credit for him. Also, you mentioned in your article Danny Donerkey and his role as sort of head of medical and treatment, and there'll be a psychological side with Danny. I know Danny says so there's a psychological side as well as the physical side. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is all encompassing, and we, we can't just look at it from a, from a medical point of view. Of course, there was sterling work done there by John Hollingsworth and his team, the surgery at Entry Hospital was successful, we, we were led to believe. But Danny himself has, has a background in the psychology of those sports injuries. He, he knows how to treat people. He's got, his rehabilitation techniques, I'm, I'm led to believe, are, are pretty innovative within the field. 
and his teammate, Andre Gomez's teammate, he's, he's very, very close to the Portuguese-speaking contingent because he speaks Portuguese himself, mm -hmm. the likes of Bernard, um, the likes of Yeri Mina as well, who, who I spoke to, the Emirates. And those guys gave him a lot of support. Andre stayed positive throughout, and it's a testament all, almost to kind of what the human body can achieve when there's a positive frame of mind, when the treatment is right. And this is not 20 years ago when, when sports science was in its infancy. Right now there is cutting edge technology that can get players like Andre Gomez back to full speed quickly. And not only that, but you pointed out that he was possibly Everton's best player yesterday. So many of those who come back from these sorts of injuries are a shadow of the player, their former self. Uh, perhaps they get there eventually, but not for quite a while. I wonder if Gomez provides Everton with some very special impetus for these final few months of the season. I think he does, and, and that's twofold, really. First of all, he's a very good footballer in his own right, and probably Everton's best central midfielder. He gives something on the ball that I don't think anybody else in the, in the squad does. There's composure, he's willing to break the lines with his passing and with his running. So we kind of saw some of that at the Emirates. There were, there were a couple of lovely cross-field switches to Richarlison to set him away for, for chances in the end for Everton that they perhaps should have taken and maybe that's, a, that, that's something else. Everton could have got a, a draw yesterday, all, all things considered. But the fact that there is a feel-good factor around the training ground now, Gomez is a popular guy, so having him back in the fold has an impact, a knock-on impact on his teammates. And Yeri Mina was obviously really disappointed after the game, but he, he still spoke to us and he wanted to, to point out that there's real disappointment in the, in the dressing room. It's, it's a sombre place because Everton have lost ground in the in the hunt for Europe to a direct rival. But that being said, there is something to take from this in a, a star player, a key player for Everton, making his comeback and doing it so successfully. It's almost, as I say at the end of the piece, that the big picture's healthy, even if the, there was a short-term um, impact and, and Everton lost that game. Good stuff, Paddy. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Cheers, Paddy. Uh, uh, Patrick Boyland, uh, our Everton writer and host of the Glad Tidings podcast. Just a, a quick question for you from social media before we go. Guess guess what it's about? Oh, I it's couldn't. Arsenal. Uh, Matt, wow. <laughs> do you know what? We should give a prize away for the first person next week to send us a question that um, that isn't Arsenal related. I think we've had a few, but Dear. the producers are just mischievous we'll so-and-so. Give you an athlete. There's an athletic pen. We could give away There were athletic. lots of Manchester City and FFP, but we're okay. not going into that today. That's a, That would be another separate kind podcast again. Uh, right, so one on Arsenal. Matt Sanasi uh, on social media. Uh, what has happened then between Arteta and Genduzi in Dubai? You've touched on it in your column. Yeah, so reports emerged about a week ago uh, after he was dropped or missing for the Newcastle game uh, that there had been a bust-up or whatever you want to call it between Arteta and Gwenduzi during a training session in Dubai um, that was actually the reaction of Arteta as is my understanding to an incident between Gwenduzi and a teammate in that training session uh, both teammates uh, faced uh, a grilling from Arteta showing he can deliver the hairdryer treatment but I think Gwenduzi incurred more of 
Arteta's wrath. Uh, he was de- deemed the guiltier party. Um, and not only that, we also reveal in the column that there was a second incident in Dubai when Arsenal went out for a uh, team event uh, where there was entertainment, music uh, and the like. And Gwenduzi, uh took off his shirt and was um, swinging it around his head in support of the act. Um, and that did not go down well. Not so much in the sense of it being in Dubai, but more in the sense that it was felt by Arsenal senior staff that that was not uh, behaviour fitting of a player representing the Arsenal badge. And so that was actually dealt with by Edu, which uh, both... The handling of both situations, I'm told, really impressed players and staff um, in that the hierarchy are all singing from the same hymn sheet and that they expect an incredibly high standard of behaviour, respect, uh, culture at any time when you're on duty for Arsenal and that discipline is a key area that Arteta has looked to, is looking to improve uh, for the greater good of Arsenal's sort of performance and, and conduct on and off the pitch. Um, and for all the discipline, there's also a, a care and attention there as well. I mean, probably right to be disciplined if that goes against the, the code of the club and what they're wanting to instill. But he is still a, a kid in a, yeah. you know, living away from home. He's in a foreign country. I know he's been here for a, for a little while, but there's also a, a care and attention issue. That's a really important point. He's 20 years old. He joined Arsenal for £7 million in the summer of 2018 from Lorient, where he had had some problems previously around his behaviour by all accounts. Um, and uh, yeah, he's in a different country, different language. He's... he's um, He's had rave reviews on the whole so far and he's done very well because, as I reported at the time he was signed, this was actually a player for the future. But he very quickly impressed. Um, Unai Emery was a great fan of his. He played a lot under him. He's not played so much when Freddie Lundberg was in temporary charge and also now under Arteta. And crucially, I'm told that he's responded extremely well to this. People inside Arsenal feel it's quite a a delicate balance with him. Okay, uh, make sure you subscribe to The Athletic to read in full great articles from David and Jack and Paddy and Rafa, uh, who has that brilliant interview with uh, Bayern Munich's Thomas Muller on The Athletic today. Uh, By listening to us, you can get a 40% discount on subscription by going to theathletic.com forward slash Ornstein and Chapman. So a 40% discount on the subscription if you go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. Remember, you might get a pen as well if you send a non-Arsenal question to us that we use uh, in the pod. Wow. Uh, All our podcasts are completely free and ad-free versions are available to subscribers and we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.